Well, why don't you grab your, your copy of the Bible and open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And we're going to come to the, the passage this morning um, is one that doesn't get a lot of airtime or doesn't get as much airtime as some of the other passages we've looked at. Um, we, we hear a lot about some of the more popular stories like the rich young ruler and the different healings and walking on water and miraculous provision of food and the multiplication of bread and loaves as, as Jesus lives his life with the disciples. And there's this next scene we come to that is not as often talked about, maybe not as often understood. And for those of us who have not really considered this passage, we may have a some, somewhat of an incomplete picture of Christ, a picture of Jesus, an understanding of Jesus that is like a half finished portrait, undone, incomplete. It's like we know that Jesus is meek and mild. We know that he's gentle and tender and loving and merciful. Praise the Lord for these things. We certainly don't want to minimize any of them. But in our text this morning, we see a side of Jesus that is absolutely consistent with those other traits. Let's not think that it's inconsistent or this is some other Jesus showing up. Absolutely consistent, and yet it is a part of him and his character that we don't think about as often. This is the text that we encounter where Jesus makes a full frontal assault on the false religion that had infected Jerusalem and all of God's people, Israel. They have turned, in so many ways, apostate. Of course, there would always be a faithful remnant that God would keep for himself at any stage in redemptive history. But at this stage, it seems that the leadership had turned so much into this false religion that it, it, it encouraged Jesus to do what he did here, to approach Jerusalem and to approach the temple with an anger that we don't often see in other places in the Bible. We do know that Jesus is by nature loving. By very nature, he's merciful. He's gentle. He is lowly. He is humble in heart. We've seen all these things in various places but we sometimes forget another truth that is right there with those that his anger burns against those who demean his love and his mercy. Here we're going to see an attack on self-righteousness, an attack on the religion of self-righteousness that had been taking center stage in Israel. And I think this is a particular section of scripture that we ought to pay very close attention to because I believe that false religion and self-righteousness is a more dangerous threat to us than open rebellion. I don't think that Grace Rancho is in all that much danger to open rebellion. It certainly is a threat and some of us might be tempted to completely deny Christ and walk away from his word and abandon it all entirely. That could happen. It is a threat, but I think there's a more dangerous threat the most dangerous threats are the ones we're not aware of, right? The most dangerous threats are the ones we think that we are not really going to fall into that trap. It's the landmine that's buried three feet underground that gets you. It's the carbon monoxide that you can't smell and you can't see that will poison you. It's the things that you're not aware of are the things that are far more dangerous. And Grace Rancho is in danger 
Because all of Scripture is testifying to this danger, this danger of false religion, the danger that looks and appears on the outside to be vibrant and alive, appearing very healthy, but on the inside is dead. This kind of smiling, neat, nice, false religion is much more devious and threatening because it is invisible and subtle. I don't know how much a threat it is to us. I don't think Grace Rancho is in danger this morning of following the devil into open rebellion. But I do think Grace Rancho is in danger this morning and this week and this month and this year and forever till we're glorified. We are in danger of becoming proud, self-reliant, self-righteous because we're pretty convinced that we would never fall for the tricks of the devil. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned Jonathan Edwards' sermon, The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. And I, I noted how in that sermon, he talks about the infinite highness of Christ and his glory and the infinite lowness of his condescension as he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this morning, we see another pair of excellencies in Christ. We have seen him just a little bit earlier to be tender-hearted and gentle and merciful to the blind Bartimaeus. You remember that a few weeks ago? And here we see a lion-hearted anger, a righteous indignation. Jesus is no coward. That Jesus will face injustice head-on. He will call it what it is, and he will deal with it firmly, directly, decisively, and that's our text. So I want to have you look at verses 12, and we're going to read the 21. If you remember the previous time we were here in Mark, we looked at, we, we kind of concluded with verse 11, although we didn't get to talk about it too much. At verse 11, it says that he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple. This is the first thing he did at the end of the day. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's people were supposed to gather and worship him. And it says, you know, he looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. It's like his, his looking around. He's evaluating this place, the temple. The temple is of great concern to Jesus. He wants to know how this holy place is being treated. It's the first thing he does upon entering Jerusalem. How are my people worshiping? He wants to know. It's too late, and so he doesn't do anything. He just takes it all in. He probably sees tables set up and all kinds of commerce kind of there, although nobody, maybe it's the end of the day, and so before the gates are shut, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes back to be with the 12 in Bethany. Remember, he's staying out there a couple miles away from Jerusalem for the evenings of this week. Verse 12, let's read what happens the following day. The following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And we would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. They passed by. The morning saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. We see in this text an angry Jesus. We see in him an aggression that we don't often see. Those of you who are in core seminar... And we're looking at Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, where he judges the world. You know, and you were reminded of, this side of Jesus, this blazingly holy, righteous judge side of Jesus. And here we see a little foreshadowing of the second coming. It is a first coming into Jerusalem to judge the people who were claiming to be his worshipers. And what we're going to see, how I want to organize this sermon is to point out three things that make Jesus angry. We're going to look at three things, three attitudes that make Jesus angry that he had to deal with in his dealing with the temple and the false religion in it. You're going to see hypocrisy makes Jesus angry. You're going to see that greed makes Jesus angry, and you're going to see that self-absorption makes Jesus angry. So let's get back to the text. Look with me at verse 12. Let's kind of begin to walk through it as we begin to see exactly what's going on here so you can understand why these things make Jesus angry. Verse 12, it says, on the following day, remember, it was last time we were in Mark, it was a Sunday, and he entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. We looked at this reality that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David showing up, that Jerusalem is the place where the throne of David is, and that he, by getting this cult in line and in place and walking in the way he did, was indicating he was the Messiah. He's making an outright divine claim of having that title of Messiah. The crowds recognized it. They were roaring in celebration. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is on Sunday. What's interesting is that on Thursday, he'll be joining his disciples for the Last Supper. On Friday, he will be nailed to a cross. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And they're coming in from Bethany because that's where they stay on the eve, for the evenings. Jerusalem would have been bustling at this point with all kinds of pilgrims coming in from all areas. The Jews had, at this point, they'd lived all over the Roman Empire and they would come in during the Passover week to make sacrifices and celebrate together. And that was going on. And so they're staying just outside of Jerusalem, a couple miles away at the town of Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. And they'd come into Jerusalem during the day. And on their way in, it says that Jesus was hungry. Another expression in illustrating that Jesus is, yes, divine, but he's also a man. He experiences hunger. He experiences 
tiredness. He has a human body, and he is experiencing hunger. So like you, if you're feeling hungry, that's what Jesus felt. He understands what it's like to be hungry. He was hungry. Verse 13, it says, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Jesus is hungry. He says there's a fig tree. It has a whole bunch of leaves growing on it. Fig trees were not the kind of trees that would grow in these great groves. Sometimes they'd just be a singular one right there. It would stand out on the horizon. He sees it as he's walking in to Jerusalem. It says that it's in leaf, which means that this fig tree had blossomed. The leaves had grown big. It was a giant producing or looked like it would have been a producing fig tree standing out on the landscape. And he thought that there could be some fruit on it. He said he went to see if he could find anything on it. And this is the way fig trees are. Fig trees are the kinds of trees that if you see all the leaves sprouting, growing, that you would expect then fruit to follow. In other words, this fig tree had the appearance of being fruitful, and upon inspection, it was barren. Keep that little idea in mind. It appeared to be fruitful, but upon inspection, it was barren. It was empty. There's nothing there. It says when he came to, came to it, Jesus begins looking up at, under the tree, looking where he would find any figs, and there's nothing there. It was not the season for figs. It begs the question, what is Jesus doing? Does he just not know the seasons for figs? Does he not know what's going on? Uh, maybe he could have asked one of the disciples. It seems Peter, who's writing, or Mark is writing down what Peter remembers from his time with Jesus. They remember there wasn't the time for figs. I don't know why he was expecting figs, but Jesus went and he looked at it and he evaluated it and he said, no, there's no figs. And then the poor tree gets cursed for it. And some of you probably were reading ahead and going, what did this poor tree do to earn this? I mean, are trees moral agents? <laughs> this is tree is being disobedient to the, uh, no, there's actually something entirely different going on here. Because you got to understand Jesus is, is doing a live-action parable. Uh, Jesus often speaks in parables. We, we've seen some of those. This is Jesus bringing a parable to life to illustrate something true. This is a live-action parable. He comes to the fig tree. It appears to be bearing fruit because of the leaves that are blossoming. And when he inspects it, there is nothing there. So he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So many of us read this and went, Jesus, come on, it's not even fig season. But Jesus curses the fig tree. And it was loud, it was loud enough for the disciples to hear it, and the disciples understood that it was a curse. That's what's happening back in verse 21. If you looked ahead, he's saying, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed was withered. He, is, he, he pronounced a curse on the fig tree. Why is this here? What is going on? Here's the key to understanding this interesting little section. You must read the cursing of the fig tree in connection with the temple assault. Because what he's doing in parable to the fig tree, he does in reality to the temple. His cursing of the fig tree is paralleling and anticipating his cursing of the temple. In fact, if you were to go and just do a scouring of fig trees in the Old Testament, you would see that fig trees sometimes represent Israel as a nation. They're compared to a fig tree. 
a fig tree either bearing fruit if, the, if Israel is obedient, a fig tree that's empty if it's being disobedient. And so it was a commonly understood analogy that fig trees are like Israel. Jesus takes this opportunity to, opportunity to enact a living live-action parable before the disciples' eyes to illustrate a point. He sees something that appears to be alive, appears to be fruitful. He examines it more closely, and it is barren and empty. In the same way, in the next section, he will go into the temple. It will appear to be active. It will appear to be offering sacrifices that are worshiping to God. And in reality, it is barren, empty. What he sees in the temple is not the true worship of God. It is an aberration. It is a corruption. It is a perversion. There is all kinds of activity. There's all kinds of things going on, hustle and bustle, sacrifices being bought, sacrifices being offered, sacrifices being sold, and none of that is the fruit that God requires of his people. Jesus sees something that looks on the outside like it's all together, and on the inside it is empty, a gross perversion of what God expects from his people. And what God is doing here, is showing us here in this text, is that Jesus is angered by hypocrisy. Jesus is angered by the hypocrisy of, of his people. Leaves, but no fruit. Outward appearance, but inward barrenness. This is what Israel was as a nation. Of course, I already mentioned there was a faithful remnant. But this is what hap- what's happening here is what's happening in Israel all over the place, that what appears to be the worship of God, what appears to be sincere sacrifices, is actually hypocrisy. Israel was chosen by God. Israel was miraculously redeemed through signs and wonders as he brought them out of Egypt. Israel was given the law. Israel was given the covenants. And throughout generations, God had treated Israel with a special kind of care. God called Israel the apple of his eye. And yet over the course of years and generations, Israel became hypocritical. They fell away from a true and living relationship with God to the point where when Jesus appears on the scene, nearly everyone in leadership has turned apostate. They've become hypocrites. They're living for themselves. So when Jesus confronts them in Matthew 23, you know what he calls them? You're whitewashed tombs. You're filled with dead man's bones. You're like a brood of vipers. That the people that you're proselytizing become twice as much a child of hell as you are. I mean, read Matthew 23 to see Jesus' expression of anger against the religious elites of his day. They were hypocrites. They were misleading the people who wanted to give worship to God. They had turned it all into a racket for their own gain. Hypocrisy makes Jesus angry. I think we need to think about this in our own lives, don't we? Be honest with ourselves here. I think there are some cases where Christians are wrongly accused of being hypocrites. It's not hypocritical to commit a sin. You will commit sin today, sins of attitude or sins of thought or sins in your words or sins in your action. 
doesn't necessarily make you a hypocrite. What makes one a hypocrite is the person who acts as if they are something other than what they are. They hide their sin. They put on their mask. They act as if that struggle doesn't really attain to them. They try to go on as if everything is good. They try to present something different on the outside than what's actually on the inside. That's hypocrisy. It's not hypocritical to commit a sin. Uh, We all will commit sin. The key is in confession and repentance and growth and presenting yourself honestly before God and men. You're not a hypocrite if you do that. But sometimes, church, hypocrisy is a real accusation. And unfortunately, it's an accurate accusation in many cases. How many times have you heard about Christians who are living double lives? The kind of person who always agrees outwardly, outwardly with the truth and wisdom of the scriptures, but inwardly barren. No affection for Christ. No desire for obedience. There's a concern to appear godly, which is greater the concern to be godly. What's your private life like? Do you worship Jesus in private you rejoice in the gospel in private? There's a lot about who you really are. You confess sins in private. Maybe even a better question. You confess private sins no one else knows about to God. You care, are you concerned about the workings of your own heart? the ways it's influenced by the world, the way it drifts from truth. You pay attention to that stuff. Some of us might be becoming more legalistic, but we're calling it our growth in holiness. Some of us might be becoming more lazy, but we say that we're growing in our understanding of Christian liberty. Some of us might be becoming more critical, but we've called it discernment. Could it be that you are sliding into hypocrisy? Where you are more concerned about what you are presenting yourself to be than what you actually are. That's what had happened in Israel. That's what had happened to the leaders in Israel. That's what was angering Jesus. And let me tell you, if you are living in hypocrisy, you may end up deceiving some people for a while. You are not deceiving God. You know who's being deceived most? You. You, at the end, when we stand before Judgment Day, you you might have deceived some people, although probably many people are sniffing out your hypocrisy. You certainly are not sneaking past God. He sees all. And on the day of judgment, you will realize that the person you've deceived most is yourself. Because we really like to believe the best things about ourselves. And if we're always presenting certain things to others, what do we end up doing? We end up thinking that those things are actually true about us. No one in goes, sets out on the Christian life planning to become a hypocrite. Stand up there in the baptismal and you share your testimony and you say, 
my plans are, 10 years from now, is to become a hypocrite. I would really like you to think I am great and holy and righteous, but inwardly I'm going to keep living for myself. So here's the tricky thing. No one here thinks they're a hypocrite. But there may be some hypocrites in this room. Hypocrisy does not deceive Jesus. And if he were to appear this very morning and to walk in this very room and to interview every single one of us, you could not trick him. You could not impress him with your outward actions and exterior accoutrements of righteousness that you try to put on. You could not deceive him. He would see right into the depths of your soul. Don't be a hypocrite. See, this is where if you're exposed and you're realizing, I am living like a hypocrite. You need to remember that Jesus is gentle. Those who lay aside the mask come before him in humility. Say, have mercy on me. I've been a hypocrite. And if you have been a hypocrite, take off the mask, confess your sin to God, and understand that he is merciful to you. By the way, church, you've noticed that every Sunday, nearly every Sunday, we we pray a prayer of confession. Pastor Mark led us in a prayer of confession this morning where we confess sins of commission, things we've done that are wrong, and sins of omission, things that we have not done that we should have done. You know why we do that? The Bible has all kinds of prayers of confession in it. And one of the reasons we regularly confess our sins is to remind ourselves that we cannot cover our sins before God. To do so would be foolish to think that we could deceive him. And every time we confess our sins to God, we are reminding ourselves that this is who we are. We are sinners. And we are remembering that Christ has covered our sins with the blood of Christ Every prayer of confession is reminding us of our great need. It is humbling ourselves. Every prayer of confession is an attempt to wipe away the face paint and the makeup we've been trying to put on to impress God. Saying, God, all that I've tried to make myself out to be is not who I actually am. I come to you in humility and confession because I know that my outward appearance does not trick you You see my heart. Friends, put away hypocrisy. Recognize who you are before God. Confess sins. Confess private sins. Look at verse 15 as we move on. We're going to see another element that makes Jesus angry. And it's greed. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem... They're now entering in. They just had this fig tree event. And now they're entering into the city. And he entered the temple. Again, this is where Jesus wants to go first. He enters into the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I love this scene. It is an amazing scene. He goes straight to the temple, and he assaults it, upends the whole system. It reminds me of Malachi 3.1, which is the prophecy of this event. Did you know that? 
that this event was prophesied in Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. I like how Malachi puts it. He will come to his temple. Whose temple is it? (laughs) He's not invading their temple. They've invaded his. He is reasserting his own authority as the Messiah. This is his temple. And he enters the temple to upset the whole thing because it has been so corrupt. It is false worship and it is deceiving the multitudes. And he is going to set things right. I want you to, to visualize this. There's a temple proper that would have been inside kind of the temple area. And you would enter the temple and the first courtyard would be what's called the court of the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles because it was a place where Gentiles were allowed to go. They were allowed to set up there and they were allowed to do worship there. But going any further, there was a little wall and they were not allowed in past that. So the court of the Gentiles was where Jews and Gentiles could come. At this point in history, the court of the Gentiles surrounding the temple, which was a huge area, by the way, had turned into something of a bazaar, a marketplace, a place of commerce, exchange. And remember, during the Passover week, thousands of Jews would be coming all from all over, and they would be coming to make sacrifices, and the court of the Gentiles had become set up as a place where you could buy your animals to sacrifice. Because think of it, you've you got two options if you're a Jewish person coming into Jerusalem from out of, uh, out of the place, yeah, from somewhere else, from a distance. You could, on one hand, bring your own animal. You'd have to travel however long it took you to get there with your own animal. You had to make sure that that animal was kosher. It had to be pure and able to be sacrificed. It couldn't be some animal with a broken leg or anything. So from the journey from where you lived with your animal to Jerusalem, you're kind of crossing your fingers that something didn't happen to your animal and make it unclean. And so what actually what would happen is people got the idea that that's not the best way to do this. Your second option then would be to bring money instead. So I'm just going to bring a bunch of money. Jerusalem, rather than trying to transport an animal, you would bring your money, you'd show up to the temple, and because you were not allowed to use Roman money in the Jewish temple, you'd have to exchange your Roman money. Your Roman money probably had some pagan deity on it, you had to change that in, you'd get Jewish money that could be used in the Jewish system, and the Jewish high priest would accept it, and you would buy your animal there. Your animal would be pre-certified, kosher, without blemish. You wouldn't have to worry. If you had the right animal, you could just pick it up right there, all ready to go. It became a very normal way. You'd pick up your animal. You'd go do sacrifice right there without having to transfer the animal, without having to worry about all that other stuff. And what became of this system, of course, which was actually, interestingly, overseen by the high priest, the Jewish high priest of this, oversaw it and profited greatly from it because what would happen if people had traveled all these miles to to make their worship to God, they would charge just about anything they wanted for the animal. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go to make sure you got the right animal? Where else are you going to go to make sure it's not it doesn't have any blemishes on it. You're, you're not going to go anywhere. You're already at the temple. You're going to buy it there. So what do you do? It's like having one gas station in town. You jack the price up, $7 a gallon, and you make a lot of money. There's no other places to get animals. You jack the prices up, and the whole system is a racket for the priesthood, for the Jewish high priest and all his family. It was a system that ended up being not driven by pure worship, but 
by greed. It's all greed. It's all about the money. And so they set up this time of year all kinds of little tables and all kinds of places to buy and to sell and to change your money. And it's a loud thing. You got pigeons squawking and lambs bleating and you got all this noise. And it's supposed to be a place of worship and it looks like a marketplace. And what's happening here in the temple, this kind of corruption we see, I mentioned before, is a microcosm for what's just been happening in all of Israel. The all of Israel, the, 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 essentially the entire upper class religious elite, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests had all made this self-made religion for themselves. It was a false religion of self-righteousness that was built on the backs of the poor to enrich themselves. It was all built on greed. Think about what you know about the Pharisees and the scribes and all the other critiques that Jesus gave them in other places in the Bible. They were greedy for man's praise, so they prayed loudly in the streets, and they made big public announcements of how much giving they were putting in the offering. They were greedy for power and prestige, and so they consolidated their power against anyone who might threaten it. Jesus, in fact, a few chapters in Mark, ahead of where we are now, Jesus will accuse them of devouring widows' houses. In other words, using the poorest of the poor, a widow, to get money from her, bilking her out of what money she had so they could enrich themselves and telling the poorest of the poor that their gifts are honoring to the Lord. It was all driven by greed. Jesus came in, he looked around the night before, he took it all in. I imagine his blood begins to boil with righteous indignation, but he's not going to do anything. He comes in the next morning and he just begins to let loose. I want you to see here, it's not merely the problem of buying and selling in the courtyard that's the problem. It's not merely that. That probably was an okay practice it had become a, play, a way to make money. It's not merely that they're buying and selling. And Jesus isn't merely appearing to, quote-unquote, cleanse the temple. If you have an ESV translation, they, the editorial heading says, Jesus cleanses the temple. The, the idea of a cleansing is almost as if Jesus came in to reform it, to clean it up a little bit. He wants to turn it around. He wants to get in the right direction. This is not what he's doing. This is not what's happening. This is not some little reformation activity. He's trying to reform the temple. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 2, he's going to say that the temple's all going to be destroyed in a little bit. He's not trying to reform it. He's not trying to cleanse it. This is Jesus judging the temple. In fact, to use the language of exactly parallel to the fig tree, this is Jesus cursing the temple. This is Jesus showing up seeing that it appears to be active and appears to be fruitful, but it is barren, and he pronounces judgment on a false religion built on greed and power. And so he begins to upend tables. I just wonder what the people are doing as they watch this. It doesn't say anyone tries to stop them. It's almost like they stood there with their jaw on the floor, looking at him, eyes wide open. What is he doing 
The, the f- tables are turning over, s- coins are scattering all over the ground, pigeons flying away, fluttering here and there, chairs being tossed across the room. Jesus is cursing this place. He is pronouncing judgment on this place. I love verse 16. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Stop. Stay there. You're not passing through. No one is allowed through. Jesus absolutely takes the place over. He rules it. He is, in fact, the Davidic king. This is, in fact, his temple. He will, in fact, rule here one day. And he is taking authority as the the rightful king, and he's shutting the whole place down. He's shutting it all down. You can't buy any more animals. You can't change your money. You can't pass through the temple. No more sacrificial activity here. No one's given any more sacrifices. The whole system is broken. It's a judgment. That's what it is. It's a judgment. It's not a cleansing. It's not a reformation. It is a judgment. He is cursing it just as he did the fig tree. And he's cursing the temple to indicate that Jerusalem and Israel has fallen away from grace. And they've fallen into false religion built on hypocrisy and also, here we see, greed. This is what was always condemned in Israel. In in Jeremiah, the the false shepherds. You remember the, the false shepherds in Jeremiah 34? These shepherds are supposed to be caring for the sheep, but they use the sheep. And they feed themselves and they get fat. And they don't care about the weak sheep. They don't care about strengthening them. They don't care about going out and caring for them. No, they use the sheep to feed themselves. And God's verdict in Jeremiah 34 is, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them anymore. And here is the good shepherd showing up to Israel, and he's saying, judgment on the false shepherds. I am here to judge the temple, judge the false religion, judge the system, because he's the true shepherd, the true king, the true Messiah, who will show the true way of salvation, which is through grace and not through this false works system. Greed so upset Jesus. Do you know, church, that Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the church is God's temple. And the same kind of holy concern that Jesus had for the temple in this text, he has that concern for what's happening here. For Grace Rancho, for your hearts. He hates greed in the temple. Our greed in our own hearts, the greed in our church, angers him. Greed makes Jesus angry because it is so opposite of who he is. He who was rich but became poor so that we in our poverty might become rich. How absurd is it for us to receive his grace and kindness and then turn around and look at everyone else like we're Scrooge, hoarding that which is ours, hoarding our time, hoarding our money, 
hoarding our talents, not giving anything to anyone, but living only for ourselves. That kind of greed is the opposite of the gospel, the kind of shape that the gospel should have in our lives. Greed has no place here, church, Christian. Greed should have no place in your heart. If greed is ruling the courtyard of your heart, Jesus wants to barge in and turn over some tables. If you are controlled by a love of money, a love of comfort that money can get you, and your career and your life is all built around getting money so you can have power and comfort and prestige and accolades, Jesus looks at that and he does not approve. And he calls you to repent. Why have you been given money? Why do you have what you have? Is it not to give it back to him and sacrifice it at his feet in worship to say, God, you are greater than money. How could I ever bank my life on the wealth that you've given me? It's only a gift. Church, is there greed in your heart? Does the way you spend your money reflect the greatness of your Savior? Or does the way you spend your money reflect that you really, really love yourself? Jesus is angered by this greed, but I want to point out this third thing that makes Jesus angry in verse 17. It's self-absorption hypocrisy and the greed had made these people completely self-absorbed. Verse 17, he was teaching them. So as he's you know, throwing tables down and knocking over booths, he's teaching as well. And one of the things he's saying to them, this is not the extent of everything he said. This is just a summary. He says, he's saying to them, is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's teaching them about the true use of the temple, and he's citing Isaiah 56, verse 7. If you want to turn there, I would invite you to turn to Isaiah 56, because I think it will correct what most of us probably have as a misunderstanding of this little section. Most of us understand this section to be talking about prayer as the primary emphasis of the temple. Uh, Many of us think that, well, the temple should have been, they should not have been selling things, they should not have been buying things, they should not have been greedy like that. What it should have been is a place of prayer. You know, prayer is the point. It's actually not the not the, the true interpretation of Isaiah 56. In fact, if you go to Isaiah 56... And you just look at the heading, I think the ESV gets it right. The heading says, salvation for foreigners. So the emphasis is not that Jesus is saying this needs to be a place of of prayer. The emphasis is this ought to be a place of prayer worship of God for the nations. The emphasis is that you have made this into a self-centered, Israel-centered worship base when it should have been a place for all the nations to come and worship me, the living God. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 56. And the foreigners, outsiders, non-Israels, Gentiles, that's who he's talking about, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord 
to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, this is the mount of Jerusalem, and make them, my, make them joyful in my house of prayer, this is the temple, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, listen to this, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You see what he's getting at? Prayer is paralleled with sacrifices and worship and joy. Prayer is not the main idea. The idea of Isaiah 56 is that the temple ought to be a place of worship for all nations. All tongues, all tribes ought to be able to come to Israel, come to the temple and give their praise to the one true God. This is what Jesus is getting at. What had happened is that Israel had made God into some tribal deity that was only concerned about them, only concerned about Israel, even to the point where I mentioned that court of the Gentiles. Yeah, they made a little court for the Gentiles to go, but there's a small wall. They couldn't go any further. In fact, emblazoned on that little wall were the words basically saying if any non-Jew tries to get past this wall, they are to be punished by death. How's that for a nice hospitable welcome? You know, the temple was actually designed by God, according to Isaiah 56, to be a place of worship for all peoples. Church, we need to hear this. God has a heart for all nations. God desires that every nation on the planet recognize his glory and give him glory, give him worship, And you say, yeah, yeah, of course, I see that in the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. But but the Old Testament was about Israel, right? Well, rethink that. Genesis 12. God chose Abraham to be a blessing and his people, Israel, to be a blessing to who? All the peoples of the earth. And then God takes Israel, gives them the law in Exodus 19, and tells them what? That you're to be a kingdom of priests. And that the nations, when they see the righteous rules of God and the holy life of the Israelites, they were to be seeing a reflection of the character of God. Say, why is the Old Testament, you know, show us that God only cared about Israel? Why did God only care about Israel in the Old Testament? We've misunderstood if that's what we thought. Do you know that Israel is is to be the canvas upon which God is painting his character so that all the nations can see who he is through Israel. Israel is a channel of blessing to all nations. That's what Israel was chosen to do. And so the temple, according to Isaiah, was to be a place where the nations could come in repentance and recognize the one true true God and give him the worship he deserves. It has always been that God has a plan and a heart for the nations, but Israel had become self-absorbed and they made the place into a nationalistic shrine that only was concerned about Israel. That's why he calls it a den of robbers. The place was like, it's like they were thieves stealing the worship due God and then retreating back to the temple like thieves would retreat to their den supposed to be for all the nations. You've made it for yourself. You've stolen glory from God. You're so self-absorbed. You're so concerned about your own comfort, your own agenda, your own success, 
The whole world that you live in has been shrunk to the size of your own concerns. Their God was not a God of all the nations. Their God was not concerned about all nations. Their God was only a God for them. And they were communicating blasphemous lies about God by making the temple only about Israel. Church, are we self-absorbed? If Jesus were to confront us on these same expectations, would he see that we have become self-absorbed? We have been called to reflect the heart of God as well, just as Israel was. The church is to be a reflection of the reality about God, that God has a heart for the nations, that people ought to see here that we, as the people of God, also have a heart for the nations, that we want the nations to give glory to God. Do you realize that we are here this morning because the gospel has traveled through cultures, through language barriers, across the sea, so that we could come to hear the gospel and give him glory. And do you understand that the gospel is not meant to stop with us, but is to continue going, being spread, till every nation, tongue, and tribe has heard about Jesus Christ. And there are people living in this world today who have never heard about him. They have never heard about him. If they wanted to know how they could be saved, they would not even have a missionary to tell them how they could be saved. There's no one near. They have no access to the gospel. They have no word from God in their language. And we should care about that. We should be very concerned about that big problem in our world. And if we only are concerned about this little speck on the globe called Grace Rancho or Rancho Cucamonga or Los Angeles or whatever you want to call it, then we have shrunk God. And we are presenting to the world something that's not true about God. We are not serving a God who's only concerned about what happens in this room. We are serving a God who has concern for all his people, all his image bearers spread all over the globe even the ones you've never heard of on Christmas Island, wherever that is. I only knew of an Easter Island because it has those head statues. I didn't know there was a Christmas Island. But there's people there, and they're made in the image of God. And if they don't hear the gospel, what happens? They don't have salvation, and they faith the wrath of God on Judgment Day without a Savior. And the church ought to be a place where the nations are on our hearts Some of you, I'm so thankful that you pray regularly for our missionaries. Praise the Lord that you care about that because I don't only want to say that this is a church responsibility. This is a Christian responsibility. If if you're not thinking or praying or participating in world missions, even if you never go, if it's not on your heart, You're not very much like Christ who is willing to storm the temple to reorient it to show God's heart has always been for the nations. Have you thought about what's happening around the world and how you, yes, yes, little you, could maybe be a part of some big thing in some other place that you'll never visit? Your prayers... Extend beyond 
four corners of your house? Have your prayers ever traveled around the world? This is why, church, you know, we pray every Sunday for a different nation. Because it helps us see that our God is much bigger than we often give him credit for. And it helps us align our heart with his. We want hearts that break for the unreached people groups. We want hearts that are concerned that God is glorified in Africa, Asia, and Afghanistan, and Japan, and North Korea, and all the other places of the world. We want to demonstrate that our God cares about those things, and we do too. And if we are a church that does not participate in any way with his plan for the nations, we've abandoned our post, we've shirked our mission, we're acting like God is a community genie. So we want the way we live, the way we pray, the way we think, the way we care to reflect that God is in fact a global God. I love John Stott's story about walking into a church that was John Stott was this, this famous theologian, pastor for many years, and he walked into a church and sat in the back. He would have been well-known because of all the books he had written and all the places he had spoken, but he sat in the back and no one noticed him. And he writes of this little moment in the back of a tiny church. He says, I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito. I sat in the back row, and when we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took about 20 seconds. I said to myself, It's a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, refugees, places of violence, world evangelization. None of it was in the prayer. Church, may Grace Rancho never convey such blasphemous thoughts about God. May we never convey that God is only concerned about what's happening here. Like God is some Grace Rancho tribal deity, only concerned about what's happening in our lives. We ought to think and pray and live and act and participate in missions to our neighbors and to the nations. Why? Because God has always been that way, and God does not like self-absorption in his people because it reflects poorly on his own character. He says, my house ought to be a house of prayer for all the nations, and his church ought to be a place of prayer for all the nations, where we labor for all the nations. And so I would ask you to consider, what is your role, individual Christian, in helping and cultivating a heart for mission in your community and in the nations. How can you be a part of that? How can you pray for those things? How can you build habits that facilitate these things? Back to Mark. The people had embraced a false religion that was so self-absorbed it had no longer any concern for the nations. It had become a den of robbers. They were self-absorbed in their temple activity, only caring about what they could do for themselves. 
Here's the result, verse 18. Rather than repenting at the judgment that Jesus meets out on them, the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is a typical MO of a hypocrite, of a self-righteous person, is you don't respond to the critique. You don't respond to the announcement that you're wrong. You plan to eliminate the person who said you're wrong. That's what you do. This is why in arguments, when someone accuses you, they usually, re, or re, when someone accuses someone, there's usually a response of an accusation back. Because if you can discredit your accuser, you get off the hook. You can maintain your own self-righteousness. This is what they're doing it, but they're doing it to the point where they're willing to murder the person who's exposing their sin. They're planning to kill him. They don't know how to do it. It says they began seeking a way to destroy it before they feared him. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The crowd loved Jesus at this point, and they, didn't, they, they weren't able to kill him in public. And so they begin conspiring how they might kill him in a different way under cover of darkness. Let's finish with this. How did they get there? The false religion, how did, how did the chief priests get to this point? Uh, this is not what they had been passed down from the Old Testament. This is not the religion of the Old Testament. How did they get to the point where they're so self-righteous, they're hypocritical, they're greedy, and they're self-absorbed? How did they get there? We need to ask that because we need to know that this could happen to us, couldn't it? Care more about appearance than reality? Dive headlong into spiritual things, but you only do so externally. You don't address your heart. Slide away into living for an appearance rather than cultivating your actual heart. You no longer need Christ because you're no longer in touch with your sin. Give it enough time. You deceive yourself. You become a hypocrite. You buy your own lies. Here's the deal. Jesus is coming to judge us all, isn't he? He sees your heart, and he knows if your devotion is true or fake. He, just as he judged the temple, he will come to judge us. You cannot deceive him. You cannot trick him. You cannot swindle him. You must repent. Pour out your heart in confession. Admit your sin. Confess your need. Believe in his death and burial and resurrection for sinners like you. Bow the knee, confess him as Lord, and receive by faith the bounding grace. Michael comes up. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now, and I'm going to ask you to pray your own private prayer. In your own heart, I want you to pray to God. Because I think the moment is now, if you have been hypocritical, greedy, or self-absorbed, the time is now to confess those things. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Then Michael will lead us in the song, Have Mercy on Me. Let's bow our heads together.